Let's talk about the basics of estate planning, and this is the 49th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hello. Is it estate planning you're looking for? How was that? That was my best attempt I can muster together to try to pretend I'm Lionel Richie singing hello. Hello. Is it estate planning you're looking for? Well, if it is, you've come to the right spot because here... Today's episode of Retirement Planning Education, I'm going to do the best I can to give a high-level introductory overview to estate planning and what all it entails. So I should preface this by saying I'm not an attorney, nor do I play one on a podcast. So take this for what it's worth. Also, a lot of these things I'm about to mention will be state-specific to where you live. And therefore, some of these names might be slightly different. Some of these documents or, or things may not exist or may exist in slightly different forms where uh, you live or where you retire to or whatever the case may be. So always, always, always with anything involving estate planning, like we're about to discuss, especially some of these legal documents, you have to, have to, have to talk to a uh, licensed practicing professional who focuses on estate plan, uh, attorney who focuses specifically on estate planning, not just some random run of the mill attorney, but um, ideally someone who focuses on estate planning and, and does this for a living, he or she will be able to best answer your questions and put in place the proper documents and forms and, and things relevant to you and the state in which you live. So before I get into it, quick side story, I've been doing a lot of painting in my house over the last week. So we have this big party with friends in early December. It's a, a white elephant gift swap party. We have, I don't know, probably 50-ish people at our house, potentially more, depends on the year. And uh, our house isn't huge. It's about a 2,000-square-foot house. So it, uh, it it gets pretty crowded, but not not uncomfortably so, at least not yet. But point is, there, there's a lot of people at our house, and my wife every year, inevitably before these parties, which we've been doing for the better part of 15 years, I think, will we'll have a honeydew list of various little things she wants fixed, uh, cleaned, touched up, whatever, such as you know repaint over the scuffs on the walls or hang these few pictures or, you know, she wants to swap out these curtains for those curtains or I don't know, stuff like that. And uh, this year, so if, here we are, it is mid-November. We're having our party early December. A um, couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, she said she'd like a few different rooms painted in the house. Uh, so I was like, okay, uh, that's kind of a big ask, but let's do this. So I, I spent the last few weeks prepping, painting, uh, jammed in a lot of painting the last few days. Still not quite done. And like any big project, once you start it, it, it inevitably begets additional projects. So for example, in our foyer, we have a, a light switch that controls the uh, outside porch light. And it's a regular switch. You got to toggle it up, toggle it down. I wanted to be fancy. And a couple of years ago, I bought uh, this, this wireless switch that you can control from your phone. You can program it and stuff. So you can have it turn on and turn off certain times. You can turn it on, turn it off remotely if you're away or whatever. So I thought that'd be cool to have. So when we're away or something, we can you know program it to come on and turn off and whatever. Because now when we go away, we just leave it on the whole time, which isn't the end of the world, but still, you know, the thing can be on for multiple days or a week, which isn't ideal. So I thought I'd be cool. I thought I'd be 21st century and uh, get this this wireless, um, you know, Wi-Fi enabled outlet. And I'm really good at electrical stuff. So I, I opened up the box 
you know, took off the faceplate uh, switchplate cover and saw there's a small box and the wires were absolutely crammed in there. There's four different wires coming in, some of which were three-way wires. I should mention there's two switches, one for the front porch light, one for a three-way light in the foyer. And there just wasn't any room to, to do anything in there. And this is a big switch because it has Wi-Fi in it. So it's much larger than a normal just toggle switch. So I was like, that's not going to work. So this was a couple of years ago I got this and it's been sitting in the garage since because I knew this this replacing the switch would involve me cutting out a big chunk of drywall, ripping out the box, putting in a new box, in a larger box, uh, redoing the wiring, patching the drywall, et cetera. And I was like, I'm not doing that until I, until I paint this room. And that was a couple of years ago and uh, didn't want to paint. And to be fair, it's been 15 years since I painted when, when we bought the house in 2007. So it was time for a, for a redo, I suppose. But this switch project, I wasn't going to do until we were painting this room. So now, now that the uh, impetus and deadline was on for me to paint this foyer, I was like, okay, now I'm going to do this project. So, you know, here I was. This was one of my big uh, prep projects leading up to painting was swapping out this outlet, redoing the wiring, et cetera. While I was at it in the kitchen, I also wanted to redo an outlet. Specifically, I wanted to add uh, a um, uh, an, an outside outlet on the, on the back side of the exterior wall there. So that involved, again, cutting into the drywall and, redoing some stuff and patching it. So anyway, so this ended up being a big project. I don't know why I'm saying this other than my, my hands are sore from holding the paintbrush and the pole and all this stuff for, you know, so long for, for so many days, but it mostly done, but now, you know, the, the rooms she wanted done are done, but now I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, we did majority of the public spaces, of the house, you know, we still have the family room and downstairs bathroom. I'm like, we should probably do those while I'm at it. Let's just keep going. You'll get it all done. I'm in, I'm in paint mode. Once I get started, I can't stop or don't stop. And once I'm done, it's like, that's it. I don't want to see this again. I'm, don't don't put paint in front of me. So now that I'm done with most of the rooms, I'm probably going to go on and go ahead and do the family room in the other room, which uh, same thing. Well, once I'm focused, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on it. I'm banging out in a day or two. Um, and, th- and that's my that's my painting. So quick side note, I, I am handy. I enjoy this stuff. Painting, I don't really enjoy, nor do I enjoy hanging lights or blinds, but well, whatever, I do it. Um, but, I, but I am, I'm going to go so far as to say super handy. I was a contestant on HGTV's All-American Handyman show, which aired, I was on season two. It aired in fall of 2011. It was one of these competition style elimination shows, kind of like Top Chef, but where Top Chef is uh, making food. This was building and fixing things. And it was elimination. The judges were Mike Holmes from that show, Homes on Homes, and Scott McGillivray. He, he does a handful of shows about rentals and flipping stuff. They were the judges. It was a really cool time. Um, I applied, I got on and, uh, did, did fairly well out of, out of 20 contestants. I ended up being fourth and I'm pretty certain I was, I was intentionally sandbagged. They kicked me out. They wanted me out, uh, to be the fourth, you know, to be the not win. I'm sure everyone's a little sour about it, you know, they're sour about themselves, but I'm, I'm convinced if, if you can go back and find the episodes, which I can't, it seems like HGTV has since taken them off and they're not even available online. Um, they, we had helpers for that project and that helper clearly threw me under the bus. At least in my opinion, it was pretty clear. So I, I got bumped out and ended up being in fourth place, which, which wasn't too shabby, all things considered. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoy building, fixing, wiring, plumbing, especially carpentry and building stuff. That's that's really my uh, one of my big hobbies. If anyone's interested, I made a website to showcase some of my woodworking stuff. It is pankowoodworks.com, P-A-N-K-O woodworks.com. Uh, nothing's for sale. It's just simply, I'm, you know, I'm proud of some stuff I built. Let me throw it up on a website. And uh, I don't know, that's it. Okay, let's move on. You probably don't care. Uh, about my painting or my woodworking or my hanging out with Mike Holmes and Scott McGillivray uh, 11 years ago, but I thought I'd tell you anyway. So let's get into estate planning now. 
So estate planning, important to keep in mind, a lot of you, not you in particular, but a lot of people think estate planning is really just what happens after I die. There's much more to it than that. It, it's, it's yes, that's obviously a huge important part of it, but the, a, lot, a lot of the aspects are also about um, things during life, certain decisions you want made or people you want to make decisions for you during life is all also part of estate planning. So let's start off by saying there's uh, there's a few different prongs of estate planning. First, uh, I'll talk about the, the the formal legal documents that many of you are probably thinking of or at least have heard of that that you may consider to be the entirety of your estate plan. It's not all of it. It is a big part of it, but it's not all of it, as we'll discuss. Now, this is one of the areas where there's a few different words and terms, depending uh, what state you're in or who you're talking to, that they may refer to these things slightly different. So don't get too hung up on the labeling I'm giving these. Get uh, you know Focus more on the function uh, and, and what I'm explaining these documents to do. First is a last will and testament, otherwise known as just a will. You all have probably heard of this. And I'm, I'm grossly oversimplifying this, but in a nutshell, a will states your wishes of what you'd like to happen to your stuff after you die, as important or more important, depending on who you ask. It also expresses who you'd like to be responsible for your minor children or dependents. So if you, you, know, you, you die, unfortunately, you have a kid that's only 10, your will will stipulate who you want to be the um, the guardian for that legal guardian for that child going forward. If you don't name a guardian for your child or other dependents, then it's ultimately on the the state to figure out uh, who who they think is the right person to to care for that person after you're gone, which might not be ideal. So very important document, this, this last will and testament, again, especially if you have dependents, whether it's minor children or others under your care, uh, adults, special needs folks, you definitely, definitely want this document because if you don't spell out who you want to care for these people, the state will take it upon themselves to figure it out. Now, different states may process this differently. They may um, talk to existing, you know, uh, survivor family members and take into consideration who, who they think is going to be best. I like to think that some judge who knows nothing about you or your family or, or this child is going to just randomly pick someone. Um, hopefully they take into consideration other family members and, and value that input. But the point is without the will, you don't really know what you're going to get with the will. Your wishes are clear that this is who I want to care for my dependents. And, and like I said, also where I want my stuff to go. If you don't stipulate in the will where you want your stuff to go, again, it comes down to the court system. Uh, they, they will figure out for you what they think your wishes or what your intentions were. Now, again, I like to think they'll take into consideration asking other folks, uh, family members, friends, whatever. But every state could be a little different. Every particular judge may be a little different. So get a will is where I'm going with this. Next, power of attorney. Um, I'm going to refer to this as a financial power of attorney, someone who can make decisions for you with, with financial con um, with regards to financial accounts. The You can also have, I guess, general legal, uh, make legal decisions for you, enter contracts on your behalf, et cetera. So I'm, I'm wrapping this power of attorney into... Uh, considering it to be financial and legal. Now, some states, I suppose, they could split it out. There could be one just for financial stuff, just for legal stuff. But I'm, I'm, I'll assume this is wrapped into one. This is a document that that details who you give authority to make legal and or financial decisions on your behalf if you're no longer capable of doing so or are otherwise not available. This isn't something that happens after you die. This is one of those during life things. Like if you're indisposed or something, or uh, you're, you're mentally incompetent for whatever the reason, or you're in a uh, you know coma, a vegetative state, you're still alive. You know you're, you're not passed yet, so your will doesn't come into play in this case. You you want someone that you trust ahead of time to make this decision while you're of uh, sound mind, 
as to who you, you want to make these decisions for you. Again, whether it's, hey, you're in a hospital, you haven't moved for two weeks for whatever reason, you're, you're non-responsive, um, your mortgage is due, someone's got to write a check, you know, or, or whatever, you got to close a bank account, open a bank account. You want to have someone who you trust, who's, who's delegated as your power of attorney to be able to do these things for you, sign contracts for you, open, close accounts for you, move your, your monies, you know, investments for you. So make sure it's someone you trust and respect and value and someone who has a good head on their shoulders, who, who you um, believe will do what's best for you. Now, there's a few different uh, subclassifications of powers of attorney. They could be limited or general. Limited means the power of attorney you're granting someone only applies to specific activities or decisions. So you can name, you can only act on my behalf for the sake of paying my monthly bills or uh, I don't know, closing a financial account. It's not this broad sweeping, all encompassing. You can do everything as if you're me. No, that's what limited is. General power attorney is, is the opposite. General is you can do everything for me. Um, whatever I'm able to do for myself, you are now able to do on my behalf as a general power attorney. So that's limited versus general. There's also durable versus springing. A durable power of attorney means the, the powers you're granting this person to make decisions on your behalf are effective immediately upon the execution of this power of attorney document. Or springing means the, the powers you're granting them are only effective upon the occurrence of some designated event, such as you put the document in place, it's executed, but the person is not yet able to act on your behalf unless X, Y, and or Z happens. So for example, one of those triggering events could be uh, I'm, I'm in a some sort of accident and, I, and I'm non-responsive still alive, but non-responsive, not able to, to make decisions or even talk for myself, you know, perhaps whatever the situation may be, yet someone needs to make decisions for you. Um, that would be a springing power of attorney where that power only comes into play if and when some event or events happen. So you can have limited or general, durable or springing, and you can combine these things together. So you can have a, for example, the most broad uh, sweeping and all encompassing would be a general durable power of attorney. General meaning the person has all abilities that you have to, to make decisions for you. Durable meaning it's effective as soon as this document's in place. Now, you may be thinking, um, springing sounds great, but um, I, you know, I may not want to risk only having the ability to have this person step in if and when I'm no longer able to do it myself. What if I make it durable, the person is now able to make decisions for me effective ASAP, but maybe that's too much power. You know, I, what if I end up changing my mind at some point? Well, you can always change this. So if you put in place a durable power of attorney today, the person you designate has the powers and authorities today, but you can yank it tomorrow or next week or a month later. As long as you're of sound mind and body, you can always change the, um, you know, any of these documents, you can terminate them, you can revise them, et cetera. So don't, don't necessarily feel concerned that once you give someone durable power of attorney, they're going to go in and, um, you know, you have a falling out with that person down the road is where I'm going. You want to be able to change your mind. You can, this isn't written in stone once you, once you put it in place. So that's power of attorney. Again, I'm, I'm assuming this is just, uh, financial and or legal next would be a healthcare power of attorney. Um, otherwise known as a medical power of attorney. Again, I don't get hung up on the names. I'm sure this is referred to different things. I've seen it referenced uh, as different names uh, across different places. So functionally, th this is similar in concept to the uh, general uh, financial and legal power of attorney I just mentioned, but this one is specific to making healthcare decisions for you. Now, I need to delineate, these are not end of life healthcare decisions, such as you are in a permanent vegetative state where doctors uh, doctors have, have 
I don't know if ruled as but doctors have said you have no chance of recovering. You know, you're going to be comatose forever. That would be a separate document. Hold that thought. But for now, this is assuming, uh, I don't know, you have some sort of procedure. You are um, given anesthesia for the procedure. You're out for a handful of hours during the, during the procedure. Some unforeseen event happens, uh, not necessarily life-threatening, but some event happens or they find something they weren't looking for or, you know, didn't expect to find. And a decision needs to be made. Do they take it out, leave it in? Do they, uh, you know, now change the procedure they were doing as a result of what they found? A healthcare power of attorney, aka medical power of attorney, would be someone you appoint. In this case, you know, you're out. You, you know, you're you're, you're uh, anesthetized. You, you cannot speak or think for yourself right now. Uh, someone will be able to step in in this case and make the decision for you about what they do with this procedure. Do they remove whatever they found or not, and things like that. So that's healthcare power of attorney. Fourth document would be a what's known commonly known as a living will or advanced care directive. Again, may go by different names in different places, so don't get too hung up on the labeling. Focus more on the function of what this form does. Whereas the healthcare power of attorney I just mentioned is someone making medical decisions for you when you are not able to, but it is not an end of life type scenario. Uh, a living will or advanced care directive is specifically end of life. Basically, like a, a DNR, do not resuscitate. If you are in a, a medically deemed a permanent vegetative state with, with negligible, if any chance of ever coming out, uh, do you want someone to pull the plug? You know, to be blunt, this is one of the main decisions with a living will or health, advanced health care directives. There's more to it than that. Do you want to be in a feeding tube? Yes or no. Do you want someone to ultimately pull the plug, et cetera? That's what a living will or advanced care directive is. So those are the four main um, estate planning documents everyone should have. Again, maybe it's only three. A power of attorney may be wrapped up depending where you are, it could be legal, financial, and medical all in one, in which case this would just be three documents, not four, like I split it out. But if, if medical is split off as its own power of attorney, then, um, then it would be four documents. Uh, okay, so that's that for now. Now, the switching gears a little bit, uh, I'll mention what probate is, hold that thought for now. But when you do eventually pass, the things you own, go through a lot of the things you own go through what's called probate probate is the process where the the judge or the the usually it's county county judge you know county court system will um acknowledge your death and they will then take your will assuming you have a will they will accept it or deny it i mean i, mean, I guess in theory i've been told they can deny it they can say no we see you have a will but this doesn't look to be valid you know it's written on a napkin it's not signed uh, this isn't good maybe in some states it is i don't know but generally speaking a will needs to be uh, signed and, and witnessed, I, I think twice, I, it depends on state again, but like witnessed and notarized that yes, this will was signed by you while you were of sound mind and body and you weren't like forcibly um, had to put pen to paper while someone was holding a gun to your head saying, sign this. And this is, you know, signing away all of your worldly possessions to, to some fraudster. Anyway, so um, I guess I'll talk about probate now because I already sort of started it. But yeah, so, so probate is one, once you die, uh, someone, usually your executor, whoever you name in the will as your executor, will um, in effect take the take the death certificate to the court, county court, uh, start open up your estate, start the probate process. Uh, probate is basically where again the, the court system oversees the administration of your estate, oversees the transferring of your assets, the um, you know takes in your will, reviews and accepts your will, and then tries to make sure that the uh, the process of doling out your stuff, appointing a guardian for your minors, et cetera, 
uh, is all done in accordance with your will. If the court accepts your will, again, assuming it was a valid will, duly signed, et cetera. Um, so the, the, that, that's probate in a nutshell. I'll leave that there for now. Uh, assets, let's step back again. So there's certain assets that, that don't flow through the probate process that you don't ultimately need the court to review and opine on. These are things that don't pass through your will in terms of assets that do pass for your will. It's just probate assets, non-probate assets don't go through your will. They pass to beneficiaries in a separate process. There's really two broad categories, could be little nuanced ones, but there's generally two broad categories of assets that do not pass through probate. One is life insurance. If you have a life insurance policy, let's say it's a million dollar payout and uh, you 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 list when, when you start the policy from the insurance company, they will ask you, who do you want the payout to go to? You say Jane Doe. When you die, the insurance company will know, they'll get notified of your death they will know you have this policy that says this million dollar policy gets paid out to Jane Doe. They will pay that out to Jane Doe, period. It doesn't have to go to a court for some judge to say, well, is it really Jane Doe that this person wants to pay out to? No. Whoever is on file uh, with the insurance company as the beneficiary of your life insurance uh, proceeds, that's who's going to get it, period. You don't need a court system to do that. So that's one asset that passes outside of probate. Another are qualified accounts, commonly retirement accounts, such as 401ks, 403bs, 457 plans, the federal thrift savings plan, or IRAs, you know, individual retirement arrangements or retirement accounts, pension plans, if you have it, Roth IRAs. These things all have beneficiaries designated when you open the accounts or at any time. It doesn't need to be when you open it. You can always change the beneficiaries on these accounts. So for example, you have an IRA. Uh, when you die, Whoever you list as the beneficiary or beneficiaries on uh, that the uh, beneficiary designation form on file with the custodian of that IRA, that's who gets it. Period. Doesn't matter what your will says. Um, the the beneficiary designations on these non probate assets override your will. I think. Now I don't know what would happen if hypothetically your IRA says I, I want to leave it to Jane Doe, and then separately you have a will that says in the will it says I want my IRA to go to uh, John Smith. I guess it depends on the state. Uh, to my knowledge, I think whoever's listed on the beneficiary designation account uh, form for the account is who gets it. But just hypothetically speaking, again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on a podcast, and I can't speak for all 50 states. Uh, I guess it, it's hypothetically possible that certain states may say, nope, the will does trump whatever the um, IRA beneficiary designation says. Now, again, I don't think that's the case, but I'm just playing devil's advocate and thinking out loud here. So, Make sure all the stuff jives. You know, if you do have a will that does specifically reference qualified accounts or life insurance, make sure, make sure, make sure the names and beneficiary splits uh, sync and, and line up with who you named on the life insurance policies or the qualified accounts themselves, just to ensure there's no discrepancy. But I believe in most of them, all cases, who you name on the life insurance policy or the qualified account uh, beneficiary form is 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 uh, where the money will go. At least that's my understanding. Uh, annuities as well. I didn't really include this as its own line item, line item. They are technically life insurance products. Therefore, if it's an annuity that does have a, a death benefit uh, payout, you would stipulate within the annuity contract itself who you want it to get paid to. Uh, some annuities look and feel more like investment accounts almost. So they're almost sort of quasi-qualified accounts 
from, from the casual observer looking on, but technically they are life insurance. So I didn't quite know where exactly to put them in this thing. But the point is, to the extent there is a death benefit, that would also pass to the heir, uh, to the beneficiary by whomever you designate within the contract as the person to receive it. It is not something that has to go through the will, aka go through the probate process. So those are the assets that do not pass through probate. They pass directly to the beneficiaries by you specifying who you want to get it in the policy, in the contract, in the account. As far as assets that do pass through probate with an asterisk, unless they're put into a trust, hold that thought, I'll talk on that in a bit. Assets that do generally pass through probate is basically everything else then. So not life insurance, not qualified investment accounts, and not annuities. So this would mean houses. Uh, there's also another caveat to houses, something called a life estate deed. Hold that thought. I'll come back to that. So a house, uh, cars, bank accounts, normal financial accounts. By normal, I mean not qualified things. Again, qualified are like 401ks, 403bs, IRAs, Roth IRAs, um, normal financial accounts. I mean, just like regular uh, general taxable brokerage accounts. That's something that would pass through probate. And then your personal effects, personal belongings, jewelry. Uh, home furnishings, tools if you have it, collectibles, um, physical cash, currency you may have sitting in a, in a coffee can under your bed or something. This would all pass through the probate process. So I already sort of, I got ahead of myself before, but I, I mentioned what what probate is. So it's where the, you know, the court gets your will, hopefully accepts your will, and then sort of oversees the process of your executor or executrix uh, who, who oversees your estate. Executor is simply if the person you designate in your will to oversee your estate is a male, executrix is if it's a female. Otherwise, it's it's the same thing, doing the same function. The executor, executrix is the one who oversees the process of administering your estate, um, actually you know, doling out your assets to the people, coordinating with the various banks, brokerage accounts, insurance companies, making sure everything gets to where it needs to go, etc., having you file your final tax return in the year of death, you are required personally to still do a final year tax return. Your estate itself may possibly need a tax return. That's a whole separate animal. But if it is, the executor or executrix is, is ultimately responsible for uh, making sure all this stuff gets done. The probate process could be long and tedious. I I've heard anecdotally different states are, are a little more uh, efficient at this than others. Um, some states also have sort of a fast track probate process where if the size of your estate is under a certain dollar amount, there's a sort of uh, sped up process to make this less cumbersome. If you have a large estate with a lot of moving parts, probate can be long, can be multiple years in some cases. So it could be long and tedious. Uh, there's also a cost. This will also vary by state. Some states charge you a cost based on the value of the assets that, that transfer through the probate, probate process. I'm thinking of California, for example, uh, happens to be one, one I'm aware of. Others, I believe, are a fixed fee, or maybe there's a few tiers of fees based on different factors. Again, I can't speak for all 50 states. So there's a cost to it. There's there's time to it. It could be tedious. Um, to the extent you can, it, it's good to try to avoid probate simply because you can avoid the process, the time, the inefficiency, and the cost to the extent there is one, which is why it's good to make sure your um, qualified accounts, your life insurance, all have properly designated beneficiaries because those transfer fairly painlessly, quickly, and easily to whomever is specified as the beneficiaries on those. They do not go through this probate process. It's completely outside the flow of the probate process. Another thing to keep in mind, probate is public record. 
uh, may not be easy to find necessarily, but nonetheless, the the process of administering your, your estate through probate is, is public record. People are ultimately able to find out what you had, how much, uh, I think, again, this may depend on state and, and even county for that matter, but what went where, et cetera. So if you are someone who um, values the the anonymity and, and privacy of your stuff, even in death, you may want to try to avoid probate as much as possible, in which case this is where a trust, one of the benefits of a trust, which, which I'll get to in a bit. Um, so hold that thought. But I just want to you know wrap this probate thing by saying probate is public record. So for example, your insurance policy you have for a million dollars that passes to Jane Doe that is not public record. That is a private contract between you and the insurance company and Jane Doe in this case. But it is not, uh, I, to my knowledge, again, maybe some states are different, but I do not believe this million dollar insurance policy, there's any public record of it, of how much it was or who got it. Whereas if you have a house for half a million dollars that passes through probate to your kids, that is public record. Um, again, depends on the state, how public it is, but to my knowledge, assume for now, that the uh, world could ultimately find out that you had a half million dollar house that went to your kids, uh, you know, Jane and Jim or something, whatever. I don't know. So you may not care. You know, you just thought maybe I'm gone. I don't care, whatever. But if you do care about the the anonymity of your stuff, you may want to consider uh, a trust, perhaps. All right. Um, ways to help streamline the probating of assets. Remember, I said that regular bank accounts and regular brokerage accounts pass through probate, which means they they would go through your will and the judge and the court system. Well, you can streamline that, make it a little more efficient by you can do what's called a TOD or POD, which stands for transfer on death or payable on death. This is basically a beneficiary designation, just like with an IRA, you designate beneficiaries for who you want to get it when you die. You can do the same for regular accounts, like regular bank accounts, regular brokerage accounts. Um, technically, this may depend on state again. Technically, I think even with having a TOD or POD beneficiary designation, I believe these accounts are still subject to probate, but in reality, um, the the actual transfer, the facilitation of your, your your heirs getting it usually should happen faster than having to go through court and the will. Because the, the typical process is if, if I'm a TOD beneficiary on someone's account and that person dies, and let's say their account was with Charles Schwab, I get the death certificate in hand. I go to Charles Schwab and say, hey, this person left me the account. Look, I'm the designated TOD. Here you go. And then generally speaking, I think Schwab should turn around pretty quickly and say, yep, you're right. Confirm death. Here's a death certificate. We confirm you're uh, one of the transfer on death beneficiaries. Here you go. Account's yours. Um, I, that's generally how it should happen. Now, again, I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying it and it depends on state, but and even different institutions that may have different timelines for uh, how long it takes them to turn stuff around. But point is that that's one way to sort of streamline and simplify the uh, process of passing assets that would otherwise have to go through the full probate process via uh, your will. Next is account titling. This means the, the form of ownership you have on the account. So common example, spouses. Let's assume a uh, married couple, spouse A has a checking account. And if and when spouse A dies, he wants spouse B to get it quickly, easily, and seamlessly. So spouse B can continue on paying bills out of the account. Well, it could be clunky and cumbersome if spouse A is the sole owner of that account. When spouse dies, even if spouse B is named in the will as getting it, again, the probate process doesn't happen overnight. So it could be days or weeks until spouse B has access to this money. And in the meantime, spouse B may not have any money and may default on the mortgage because you know he or she can't make payments. So you can title it, you can jointly own it, 
instead of owning the account individually in title, you can have like joint tenants with rights of survivorship. This simply says that us two, spouse A and spouse B, both jointly own this account. That's that's what joint means, uh, joint tenants. With rights of survivorship means if and when one spouse dies, the other one automatically uh, just uh, uh, now owns the whole thing seamlessly. So spouse A dies in this case, spouse B still has unfettered, unrestricted access to do whatever he or she wants in this account. There's no need for it to go through probate and formally transfer because you're already on it by, by titling it as joint tenants with rights of survivorship. Now, I'm not saying you necessarily should, there, there's more to it than this. Maybe you wanna keep your assets separate. Maybe you live in a state, different states have different rules about what's community property versus separate property. It's a whole other animal. Uh, but just point is that there's different ways you can uh, have ownership of certain accounts that can help uh, greatly help the the facilitation of uh, what happens to this account after your death. I mentioned before, a, a life estate deed with regards to a house. A house would normally go through probate if not in a trust. Another way to help speed it up is something called a life estate deed. I've also heard this referred to as a ladybird deed and another name that's slipping my mind. Different states may or may not allow this. They may have slightly different twists on this, but the gist is, at least here in New Jersey, it's called a life estate deed. Um, you own a house. You ultimately want it to go to your child, let's say, but you don't want to give it to your child now for, for various reasons. And you don't want to wait until you're dead for your child to get it. And then it's going to have to go through a state process and you know, it could take a while. And in the meantime, what's your kid going to do with the house? Maybe it's kind of frozen and hung up in the, in the legal proceedings. So you can do what's called a life estate deed, where basically you say, so long as I continue to live in this house, you actually change the deed. You change the form of ownership of the house where it's a life estate. That means as long as you continue to live, you reserve all rights to use that house as you see fit. Live in it, paint it, you know, redo the roof, fully enjoy it, fully use it, no restriction. Once you die, that house now instantly switches over to being owned by whoever you named as the, uh, the beneficiary. Let's assume your child again in this example. So a uh, really clean and efficient way to transfer a house if your state has this. There's some wrinkles to it from a tax perspective, not to get too complicated, but um, technically you are gifting a portion of your house. The day you put this life estate deed in place, you're gifting away a portion of the house. In a nutshell, the way it works is, at least in New Jersey, I can't speak for every state, but the older you are, the less likely it is you're gonna live a long time. Therefore, the, the value of that remaining interest you have in the house to continue to use it for the rest of your years isn't that large. Cause again, you, you're assumed to have a shorter period of time on this earth left. So the value of you using is relatively small, which means the value you're gifting away now to your child is that much larger um, and vice versa. If you put one of these in place when you're only 40 and uh, you know you put a life safety in place when you're 40 for a child who's, who's 18 at the time, let's just make up a number you have a lot of life. Let's assume, I don't know, 40 something years of, of assumed uh, life left in the house. You're not giving away much value yet because you still have a lot of years. You're retaining a lot of value in that house. Um, so where am I going with this? From a tax perspective, it is a gift. The value of the portion that you give away today to eventually be transferred in the future is, is a, a gift. And that gift, like any gift, is potentially um, not necessarily taxable, but you have to report it to the IRS. Generally speaking, if you give any gift to any individual in excess of the annual exemption limit, which for 2022 is 16,000 bucks, I think, for 2023, I believe it's going to be $17,000. If you give anything more than $17,000 to any one individual, you have to report it 
to the IRS. Now you almost certainly don't have to pay tax, but you nonetheless have, you nonetheless have to report that value of the gift. The recipient won't have to pay tax either, but uh, nonetheless, the IRS wants to know that you gifted it for, for different reasons outside the scope of today's podcast. Uh, anyway, so that's that's one thing I, I've had uh, some contention with with estate planning attorneys who, who live and die by these life estate deeds and say they're the best thing ever. Like, why wouldn't you do it? And I say, yeah, I get it. Um, but the the tax implications, you know, people don't know this. I've come across attorneys that are freely handing, not handing them out, but telling all clients you should do this. It's a cheap, easy, no brainer. And they don't think about the tax implications. Now, here you go. You have a million dollar house. You do, a, and you're 80 years old. You do a life estate deed to your child. You may have just gifted that child something worth. I'm making up a number: six, seven hundred thousand dollars. That needs to get reported to the IRS. So, if any time uh, an attorney brings up a life estate deed or ladybird deed to you, ask him or her what are the gifting and/or tax implications to this, and see what they say. If they, if they say none. Um, I, I be a little concerned and I'd separately reach out to whoever does your taxes or, you know, find a CPA is familiar with these, ask what he or she thinks, uh, what you're supposed to do. But the right answer should be, you have to file a gift tax return to report the value of the gift. One other little complication with this is, um, while you live in the house, you technically have two owners. So like, if you wanted to get a mortgage, you and the person that has this life estate, uh, the, you know, person who eventually get it needs to sign off on this mortgage because you're technically sort of, I don't say joint owners, but, but you both have an ownership stake in this house at this point. So even though you have the right to use it as you please and enjoy it and live in it, um, there is now a second owner in the house that if you change a mortgage, get a mortgage, et cetera, you will have to have that person sign off as well, which, which may be more complication than you're interested in, but food for thought. And finally, let me wrap up talking about trust. Man, this can be multiple episodes in and of itself. There's um, um, another gross oversimplification. I'm going to boil this down to two types of trust. One is a living, aka revocable trust. And the other is a irrevocable, meaning non-revocable trust. A living trust is something where a trust is just basically this this legal thing. It's, It's an empty box. You can put stuff in the box. Anything in that box, if and when you die, will pass outside of probate. So not public record. Uh, things in it won't be subject to probate costs and you can stipulate in the trust itself who, who is ultimately to get what upon your passing. Now, again, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying it, but that, that's it in a nutshell. So if you want to keep anonymity, you want to speed up the the process of transferring stuff, especially if you've got a lot of assets that would otherwise go through probate. Um, you want to make it a little simpler for, for your heirs. A, a trust can be a decent way to do it. Uh, a living slash revocable trust is one you put in place while you're alive. You can change any terms while you're alive. You can cancel the trust while you're alive. You can put assets into the trust, take assets out while you're alive, et cetera. It's fully revocable, meaning can be changed, can be terminated. That's a, a living revocable trust. On the contrary, an irrevocable or non-revocable means w- that's it. Once you once you create the trust, there's no one doing it. Um, it is completely separate from you. It is taxed separate from you. Generally, there's some loopholes to this, but uh, whereas a, a living revocable trust, anything in the trust like, that earns money while you're alive is taxed to you personally. It, it's really from a tax perspective, no different from you. Legally distinct, but tax-wise, not different from you. Irrevocable is legally distinct and tax separate from you. It, it's its own living, breathing, taxable entity in the eyes of the IRS. Anyway, so once you have an irrevocable trust, you can't change it. Um, there's no going back like there's a living or, or revocable trust. Furthermore, assets you put in, you can't take out. Now, again, there's, there's loopholes to this stuff, depending on who you get as the executor of the trust and the, the certain powers you can put in there. In theory, you, you can still have um, 
nearly as much use and control of the stuff, but in reality, or you know, on, on paper, no, it, it's not. Once you put stuff in the trust, it's gone. It's not yours. It belongs to the trust. You can't get it back necessarily. So I'll I'll leave that there. Just I want to bring this up because the benefit of at least in the plain vanilla living slash revocable trust is it can help you avoid probate by anything in that trust. For example, I mentioned house, uh, bank accounts, brokerage accounts. Uh, those are things that that pass through probate probate generally, unless you have a trust, let's say, and you put those things in the trust. Now they circumvent, they skip the probate process and they pass a little quicker and easier. Is it worth getting a trust? I don't know. It depends who you ask. I've come across attorneys that say absolutely everyone should do it. I've come across others that say absolutely not. You know, these living revocable trusts that most attorneys churn out for people are nothing more than a money-making machine that's really uh, unnecessarily uh, complicating things. So again, really depends on your state uh, and, and who you ask. California, for example, the probate fees are a percentage of the probate size. So one of the uh, common reasons people often use trusts in California, especially when they own brokerage assets, is simply to have those assets avoid being subject to the probate fee. Um, it's a neat little trick for California. All right, I'll, I will stop there. Trust, like I said, I, this is a whole separate can of worms I can go on for for a while. And I'm not a trust expert. And a lot of this, again, depends on the state you're in and what you're trying to accomplish with it. But there's a lot more flavors of trust than just these two broad strokes that I that I brought today. And again, to, to recap, I'm not a lawyer. Take everything I said here at face value. Anytime you have any sort of estate planning or legal questions, definitely run them by a licensed practicing estate planning attorney in your state because he or she will know the specifics to you and the state in which you live and, and what these documents are called, how they work, what's allowed, what's not allowed, et cetera. That's it. Uh, if you like this podcast, you will definitely dig my other content sources. My Facebook group is Taxes and Retirement. My YouTube channel is Retirement Planning Demystified. And my monthly newsletter is Retirement Planning Insights. You can find links to all three of those in the notes to this uh, podcast. And finally, if you do like, enjoy, and value this episode, uh, this podcast, I'd greatly appreciate if you would take a few moments to leave a review, positive review, a click, uh, a like, a thumbs up, a heart, uh, whatever means of acknowledgement there is in whatever podcast listening platform you use to listen to this uh, fantabulous retirement planning education show. That is all. Thank you very much. I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.